So yesterday, we completed the second contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutta. The first one was body. The second one was Vedna. And today, we'll talk about the third contemplation, the third of four, which is contemplation of mind. The sutta says, And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the mind? Here, a monk knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate, a deluded mind as deluded, an undiluted mind as undiluted, a contracted mind as contracted, an uncontracted mind as uncontracted, a distracted mind as distracted, a developed mind as developed, an undeveloped mind as undeveloped, a surpassed mind as surpassed, unsurpassed as unsurpassed, a concentrated mind as concentrated, an unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated, a liberated mind as liberated, an unliberated mind as unliberated. And so he abides, contemplating mind internally, externally in both, contemplating the arising and passing away, or both of these mind states, contemplating with just enough mindfulness for bare knowledge and attention, and he contemplates mind states uh, independent and free of clinging to anything in the world. And that is how a monk abides, contemplating the mind. So that is the complete reading on the third foundation. This list of, uh, I think it's 22 examples, kind of pairings, maybe there's 11, um, are examples. It's not an exclusive list. You can have many mind states. Uh, it's good to read this sutta and get a feel for um, the kinds of mind states we have so that you can definitely be mindful of the kinds that are listed in the sutta. But one that's not listed in there, for instance, is happy. You might have a happy mind state. And that would be just fine to notice. Uh, or a sad mind state. Okay, so being mindful of mind states is being mindful of thoughts and emotions. Um, it does not involve being opposed to the mind state that you're recognizing. So try not to have an aversive response to any mind state, including one that says you're evil. <laughs> Just notice it. Because if you have aversion to an aversive mind state, it's aversion squared. Yeah. And you don't want to have aversion to lustful mind states either. Just notice them. If we ha when we have aversion to our mind states, we're identified with them. When we just notice them without aversion, we're not as identified with them. We see them more impersonally. We see them just as natural occurrences of the mind. So try not to add downstream mental Vedana to the mind state you're noticing. 
And if you do, just know the notice the Vedna without letting it progress to greed or aversion. So turning to your mind states kind of deactivates the emotional pull of them. When we're in a mind state, we're in a bubble, and we don't even see it. You know, we're just in it, and we're identified with it. But when we can be mindful of it, we get a little distance, and we're not as identified. The Majjhima Nikaya offers a simile for being mindful of mind states, um, and what that might look t- like over time as we develop this ability. It says, um, one is walking quite fast for no particular reason, becoming fully aware of what one is doing. One might walk slower or even stand still, or instead of standing, one might sit or lie down. Analia says that this progressive explanation in the Majjhima Nikaya for watching mind states, this progressive increase in physical comfort and tranquility from walking fast to eventually lying down vividly illustrates how the mental agitation and tension of mind states can gradually be reduced and overcome through direct observation. Watching an unwholesome mind state without involvement in this way will deprive it of its fuel so that it will gradually lose its power. So you might notice this in just one observation, or you may, as you get practice with it, notice it over time. The instructions to notice mind states internally and externally. So mind mind states and your mind states. Joseph Goldstein says, when we're unmindful externally of others' mind states, the happy mind state in others could trigger jealousy or envy or a form of aversion in us instead of mudita. So we want to just notice other people's mind states and then notice ours in response as well. The writer Anne Lamont um, expressed this possibility clearly when she described how difficult it is for writers to accept the triumphs of other writers, especially when the success of another writer is the success of a friend. She says, it can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you were wishing for a small bad thing to happen to your friend, say for her head to blow up. So be mindful of others' mind states. She's had good fortune. She's happy. 
And with the arising and passing away instruction for all these satipatthanas with regard to mind states, Joseph Goldstein says this, I have found the contemplation of the departing moment of a mind state particularly useful when desire is present in the mind. So often in the throes of a wanting mind, we feel an urgency to to fulfill the desire. But somehow, um, we think we have to gratify it in order to feel fulfilled. We forget that it is desire itself that desires. There's no permanent, unconditioned self doing the desiring. It's desire itself that desires in a way that's fairly predictable according to the teaching on dependent origination. We see a sight. We have pleasant vedna. We don't have mindfulness between that vedna and craving. Craving can set in and lead to dukkha. We have a thought. It's a pleasant thought. Without mindfulness, it can lead to craving and fantasizing and dukkha. So for Joseph, he pays particular attention to the departing moment of a mind state. So he's not just mindful of the arising or the persistence of a mind state. He's fine-tuned his mindfulness enough so they can actually see when the mind state departs. He says, the great law of impermanence will resolve desires all by itself. And he goes on to say, so we notice desire, and then its end, it's passing away. And when we do, we're let out of the grip of desire's grasping nature. And the more often we see the passing away nature of mind states and emotions, the less driven we are by them. And the more we gain confidence in the truth of the impermanence of mind states. So we begin to be able to be mindful of our mind states without fear or identification and without reaction because we begin to see the impermanent nature of them over and over. And then the instruction to be mindful of mind states with just enough mindfulness for bare attention and knowledge. This implicates the teaching in the Bahia Sutta that we talked about last night. In the scene, just let there be the scene. Just mindful enough for bare knowledge and attention without adding on top of it the story, more story. So in the scene, just let there be the scene. So that includes mind states because it says in the cognized, let there just be the cognized. So we see these emotions and thoughts without adding more. 
we see the thought, I am evil. We see the unpleasant Vedna with it. We see the avalanche of thoughts maybe getting ready to assail us, but they don't because we're not going there. <laughs> we're going here. We're being present to our, to our mind states, to our thoughts, without adding more, without all those second arrows, without all that downstream mind Vedna. Just to go over the list, to familiarize ourselves with these mind states that are in the sutta, the first three are greed, hatred, and delusion. I think the first one says lustful, but that's just another word for greed um, and hatred and delusion are the other two. So uh, greed, it's um, the automatic pilot response that we have to pleasant Vedna. It's when Vedna goes to the craving mind of greed without mindfulness. It just becomes an automatic pilot response. We go straight from pleasant Vedna to greed. So greed is the automatic pilot reaction to unnoticed pleasant Vedna. And for hatred, it's just the same thing, only it regards unpleasant Vedna. And with hatred, you could substitute words like fear, anger, resentment, any aversive state. Aversive mind states are the automatic pilot reaction to unnoticed, unpleasant Vedna without inserting mindfulness between Vedna and the aversive mind state. Delusion is being unaware that our reactions to external objects are caused by our own internal conditioning, not by the objects themselves. The defilements are in us, not in the object we're having the defilement about. Remember Ayakema's three-part prescription, not to blame the trigger. We're doomed if that's what we do. There's no freedom there. The freedom lies in seeing that the defilement is in us. We can do something about that. We can't do anything about the triggers of our lives. But we can control how we respond to them. So again, that three-part prescription is notice when we're in an unwholesome mind state, don't blame the trigger and substitute a wholesome mind state for the unwholesome, like one of the Brahma Viharas of metta, compassion, mudita, or equanimity. With regard to a contracted, uh, a deluded mind, um, uh, one of the mind states listed in the sutta, it's really difficult to know when we're in a deluded mind. But when we wake up, we can notice it's passing. So don't forget the benefit of noticing the departing moment of a mind state. With a contracted mind, the commentaries say that a contracted mind is sloth and torpor or the sinking mind, maybe boredom, a contracted mind. And see if this sloth and torpor or boredom 
is the mind's automatic pilot reaction to unnoticed neutral Vedna. A distracted mind state is is a mind distracted by restlessness and remorse. A developed mind is a mind that can attain to jhana or keep the precepts or is in one of the Brahma-Viharas. It's a developed mind. A mind that is surpassed or a surpassed mind is a mind that could do better. Maybe you're not doing the best you can, or you could do better and have a uh, a more uh, uh, developed mind with better practice. A concentrated mind is access and the, and the jhanas. A liberated mind in this list refers to temporary liberation, like when you're temporarily secluded from sense desires and unwholesome states of mind, in other words, the hindrances, the temporary freedom you feel from setting aside the hindrances, which you've had to do to get into access in the jhanas. So that's a liberated mind, temporarily, but still it's one worth being mindful of. having an insight that is freeing. Notice the freedom that comes with some of the insights we'll have. It's noticing the liberated mind. But basically, just notice your state of mind. And you can do this with a concentrated mind or not. It's good to know what your state of mind is. Check in frequently. What is it right now? When you sit down to eat a meal, check in with your mind. Is it happy? What about when you finish the meal? What is it then? Get in the habit of knowing your mind states. Through the teaching of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, um, we have a method for developing continuous mindfulness. And what's it leaving out? The body, Vedna, mind states. So in every waking moment, we can be mindful of these foundations. The other benefit from being mindful of the Satipatthanas is it helps us also to notice not only what's going on in this moment, but the process of change that is going on constantly. Okay, so we finished the first three 
satipatthanas, and now we're on to the fourth one, which is contemplation of mind objects, the fourth and final satipatthana. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects? So there are five main categories in this satipatthana, and uh, the first one is the hindrances, the five hindrances, which we talked about much earlier in the retreat. Here, monk, a, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in, in respect of the five hindrances. How does he do so? If sensual desire is present, a monk knows that it is present. If sensual desire is absent, one knows that it is absent. One knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise, and one knows how the abandonment of sensual desire comes about. And finally, one knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come around. Likewise, if ill will is present, and sloth and torpor is present, and restlessness and remorse is present, and doubt is present. One knows that they're present. One knows when they're absent. One knows how an unarisen hindrance comes to arise. One knows how the abandonment of an arisen hindrance comes about. And one knows how the non-arising of an abandoned hindrance in the future comes about. So one abides contemplating the mind objects of the hindrances internally and externally, arising and passing, with bare knowledge, independent and not clinging to anything in the world. So in the last Satipatthana, with the mind states, we were instructed to just be mindful of the mind states, of the presence of the mind states. Here, we're instructed to do much more with the mind states um, in the hindrances, which are more or less the same as the, as the list of mind states in the third Satipatthana. But we've got further instructions. So this is even more of an advanced practice. So first, we need to know whether they're present or absent. That's a new thing. Noticing the absence of aversion. Noticing the absence of lust. The absence of sloth and torpor. The absence of restlessness and remorse. The absence of doubt. And when they're all absent, we're secluded from the sense desires and unwholesome mind states. And we're ripe for getting into access concentration and the jhanas. So notice their presence, notice their absence. Know how um, the abandonment of an arisen hindrance comes about. So in other words, how do we get rid of them if they're here? And I devoted a whole talk to that earlier in the retreat about the 
antidotes to the hindrances. And there's a handout on the um, wall out there. And so for sense desire, for instance, we talked about guarding the sense doors. That's a way to abandon um, these um, the hindrance of sense desire. Knowing, knowing what comes in, and when it comes in, abandoning it. Learning the sign of the unattractive in sense desire, which is impermanence. Both our desire is impermanent, um, the object of our desire is impermanent, and then a third thing is the impermanent and fleeting nature of our satisfaction with getting the object of our desire. So notice the noticing the impermanent nature is a way to abandon hindrances, uh, the hindrance of sense desire. For aversion, we talked about devoting ourselves to meditating on metta and frequently remembering we're the owner of our karma. So we want to remember karma in the heat of passion. What's our karma going to be if I do what I want to do in retaliation for how I think I've been wronged in the heat of anger. There's always consequences. So for all of the hindrances, we also talked about having noble friends and noble conversation. All right. What about knowing how the non-arising of abandoned hindrances in the future uh, will come about. This is more permanent abandonment of the hindrances, the non-arising of abandoned hindrances in the future. So we've temporarily abandoned them, but how can we keep them from arising again, ever? This is permanent abandonment, freedom. And the answer to that is the noble eightfold path. That's the path of practice leading to the end of dukkha, of leading to the permanent abandonment of the hindrances. So we keep the precepts. We get the mind concentrated. We incline it towards insights to get the wisdom we need to wake up. The ethics component of the Noble Eightfold Path, keeping the precepts, the concentration component of the Noble Eightfold Path, getting the mind concentrated through right effort and right mindfulness, and then inclining the mind towards insight with a concentrated mind to get the wisdom we need, which is the wisdom component of the path, and insight into dependent origination and this, that, conditionality. Okay, let's move along now to the aggregates. So we're still we're in the last Satipatthana of the four foundations of mindfulness. There are five main categories, uh, and the first one was the hindrances, and the second one is the five aggregates. The Pali word is khandas. And we've started talking about them uh, in the talk on Vedana and dependent origination. 
So some of these will be familiar to you, like form is the first aggregate that's uh, in the list of five aggregates. Form, so that's um, the five organs and the five objects. Notice I said five and not six. There are six sense doors in Buddhist cosmology, the eyes, ears, the mouth, nose, body, and mind. But in Vedna, I mean, in the aggregates, the, um, the form aggregate includes everything but the mind because it has other aggregates that address the mind. So the form aggregate is the five sense organs and the five sense objects. So for the eyes, it's the eye organ plus the sights that the eye sees. The ear, it's the ear organ plus the sounds it hears. The nose organ, the odors it smells, the taste, the tongue and the tastes, the body and the body sensations. That's Rupa. And by the way, these five aggregates are the way we experience the self. So it's an attempt to chop up the way we experience the self into discrete aggregates to take a look at them. And it's an exclusive list of how we view the self. So form is one, our organs and the sights and sounds and smells they experience. The second is Vedna, our initial categorization of sensory input. Or as Hardy corrected me once and said, it's not our initial categorization of sensory input. It's the mind's initial categorization of sensory input. The third aggregate is perception. Sanya is the Pali word, S-A-N-N-A, with little tildes over the ends. Perception, the way that we, or the mind, labels things. It knows what things are. Tree, house, building, green. That's the third one. The fourth of the five aggregates are mental sankharas, sometimes called mental formations or mental activities, or sometimes just called sankharas. But here it's not all sankharas. It's limited to just the mental ones. So our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions, our, our moods, things like that we talked about earlier. These are mental formations. And then the fifth aggregate is our consciousness or consciousness. <laughs> Which comes and goes with sense objects. So as the ear and a sound come together, if you're not deaf, you've got sense consciousness. of the, You've got ear consciousness. 
and that ear consciousness hangs around as long as you're hearing that sound. Okay, so this the Buddha's first teaching, very first teaching in the uh, wheel of setting the Dharma in motion, has an interesting thing to say about these aggregates with and their relationship to dukkha. First, he lists all the different ways we can experience dukkha by saying, this, monks, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. And for you women out there who've had done that, you know that's true. Um, but it's also probably dukkha on the baby. And then there might be other kinds of birth as well. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. All right, so that's a list of a lot of things that are dukkha. But then the very last line of this paragraph in the Buddha's first sermon says, in short, dukkha is clinging to the aggregates as if they were me, my, and self. He doesn't say it exactly like that. He says it exactly like this. In short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. But what that means is, in and of themselves, the aggregates are no problem. Form, vedna, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. In and of themselves, they're fine. It's when we cling to them. In short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. When we cling to these five aggregates for a permanent and unconditioned sense of self, they're dukkha. So they're in this list, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness, in this order. The way we typically look at it is the first and last ones come together. So form, the five organs plus the five objects come together with consciousness. Those three form contact. And then there's Vedna, perception, and mental formations. And so this implies that Vedna comes first, and then we perceive the objects and then we have mental formations about them. And in my example of the thought of being evil, that was a thought contact that was, and immediately after the words, there was Vedna of unpleasant, and then I woke up, And I had a perception about, oh, I just had this thought. And then the mental formations were getting ready to hit. So kind of went in that order. I had the Vedana. I had the 
perception. And then I was about to have the mental formations about it. Years ago, when I was working in an office, um, I had an experience that at the time I didn't see it following this progression. But years later, when I learned about the progression of Vedana perception and mental formations, I thought, wow, it did follow that. It was startling to me um, because I had the Vedana before I even knew what the problem was. And the problem was Barbara. I was working in an office, and she was um, just about to become in my visual uh, uh, line of sight. And it was a long hallway. And so I really couldn't make out who she was at first. I just saw this form. Um, And my immediate reaction was unpleasant. I mean, I had this visceral, unpleasant uh, feeling. It was very fast. It came over me. I knew I didn't like what I was seeing before I recognized what I was seeing. It was so striking that years later, this is what came to mind when I heard about the sequence of Vedna first and then perception and then Sankaras. So I had this unpleasant reaction and then I perceived, oh, it's mean, old, snarly, ugly Barbara. And then I had all these mental formations that went straight from, you know, unpleasant Vedna, knowing who it was, to full-on aversion. Um, And it brought on all kinds of I thinking and my thinking and caused me a lot of suffering. Some of the statements I wrote down when I was thinking about this later was, she's my enemy. I'm right and she's wrong. I must avoid her. When she comes this way and we pass in the hallway, I won't look at her or I'll look at her and snarl. No, I'll ignore her. I am superior and she is inferior. And the last one I wrote down was, she must be destroyed. (laughs) So... Who was suffering in that scenario? It was me, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay. So the five aggregates, a way to deconstruct the self into five discrete aggregates. They cut through a wrong sense of a permanent, unconditioned self. We identify with them, of course, by claiming each one of them as I, me, or mine, based on wanting pleasure and not wanting pain or unpleasantness. The self is always bound up with the craving mind of greed and hatred. We want things to be a certain way, and when they're not, the sense of self seems solid, looms large, And we suffer.
So get practice with seeing what forms are coming through the sense doors. What's your Vedna associated with them? What labels are you giving them? And what are the mental formations about them? Perception, I mean, Vedna perception, mental formations. We get confused about what causes our dukkha. We think it's the object of the sense door. But it's our perceptions and and mental formations about them if we don't catch the Vedna. Just like it wasn't Barbara. It was my internal process. It was causing my dukkha. So during your walking meditation today, practice being mindful of the aggregates. See if you can parse them out. See if there's anything else besides those five that define your sense of who you are. And you don't have to see all five aggregates. You might just notice one or two and notice they're arising and passing if you can. And see if you can notice a sense of self being created. Um, Let me just say a a couple things about insights. So you might want to think about moving to insight practice unless you still want to deepen your jhana practice. And that's just fine. This is a jhana retreat and you can do that. I wouldn't try for more jhanas at this point. But in the in generally speaking, um, I would now start inclining your mind towards insight practice, unless um, unless you want to deepen the jhana you're in now, and that's just fine. Any of the four foundations of mindfulness are great for insight practice. Anything we've talked about in our morning sessions is prime real estate. Plus impermanence, which we talked about in an evening talk. Dependent origination, which we've talked about in an evening talk. To look, and you can also look at any of the hindrances as an insight practice. You can uh, say, for instance, greed or aversion. You can see it before you get into access and just make a mental note. I want to come back and look in that, that that is part of my insight practice if I get concentrated enough to do it with a concentrated mind. And then you progress along and you get into access or one of the jhanas and you climb the mind after access or one of the jhanas to insight practice and you look at that hindrance and you might get some insights into it. It could be a personal situation or it could just be aversion in general or Um, impermanence, or one of the other satipatthanas. With regard to not-self, which when I say that I mean there's no permanent, unconditioned self, you might want to ask as an insight practice after getting the mind concentrated, who am I? And then you might want to turn the answer into another question. There's no wrong question and there's no wrong answer. It's just um, a good exploration. So who am I? Another question might be, what's going on here? 
just investigating what's going on here. Of course, the five daily recollections are good for insight practice. Just pick one. And don't forget about your five things to do at the beginning of a sit. One of those is a really good reminder to select an insight practice before you start meditating so that you don't have to go look in one with the concentrated mind and deplete that valuable resource, taking it up by looking for something to do with it. Explore this. I want you to get a taste for how beneficial this practice can be for your inside practice, what it's like to investigate reality with a less egocentric mind. Sometimes you're going to have insights after being concentrated as you incline the mind towards insight and look at the subjects you've decided you want to investigate. And sometimes instead of insights, you'll just have peace and ease. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to have earth-shattering insights every time. You can just hang out in the peace and ease on the positive side of the brain after concentrating your mind. No, I want you to know that too. (laughs) Okay, have a wonderful lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.